Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. And please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the website. The Guardian headline said, Dizzying pace of Biden's climate action sounds death knell for era of denialism. The Sunrise Movement statement said they, quote, celebrated major climate victories as President Joe Biden announced monumental climate executive actions to begin a society-wide mobilization to stop climate change, create millions of good jobs, and roll back centuries of systemic racism. The statement continued, Sunrise was not only instrumental in electing President Biden, but ensured he ran on the most progressive climate platform in history. Now, in a victory for the movement, President Biden is beginning to follow through on his promises, symbolizing a turning point in this country's climate politics and our nation's history. With a more skeptical take, the Indigenous Environmental Network says, quote, We stand by our principles that such justice on these stolen lands cannot be achieved through market-based solutions, unproven technologies, and approaches that do not cut emissions at source. Climate justice is going beyond the status quo and truly confronting systemic inequalities and colonialism within our society. Food and Water Watch says Biden's orders fall well short of what's needed and must be paired with serious plans to stop our deadly addiction to fossil fuels. We need a White House that is committed to stopping all drilling and fracking and shutting down any schemes to export fossil fuels, end quote. The plan Biden announced is certainly a radical departure from four years of climate denial. But does it go far enough, fast enough, to be effective in preventing warming reaching 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures? It's encouraging that John Kerry, the new climate czar, said that 1.5 degrees was the goal and not the two degrees that usually gets talked about. But will this plan actually get us there? Now joining us to assess the Biden plan is Patrick Bond. Patrick is a political economist, a professor at the University of Western Cape School of Government in Cape Town, South Africa. He was born in Northern Ireland and pursued his doctoral studies in geography at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. His best-known work is Elite Transition from Apartheid Neoliberalism in South Africa, and he also co-authored Politics of Climate Justice, based on South Africa's hosting of the 2011 UN Framework Convention on Climate Change Summit. Thanks very much for joining me, Patrick. Yeah, it's great to be back with you, Paul. So start with the positives. Uh, I mean, certainly the biggest positive is at least now there's a conversation that there is such a thing as a climate crisis, uh, and that ain't nothing compared to the last four years. But still, the real question is, is this a plan that's going to get where we need to be uh, is it going to be effective or not? So first of all, start with what do you think is positive, if you think there is some positives in the biden carry announcements, and then let's get into what might be the weaknesses. Yeah, three very important positives, Paul. I don't think uh, anyone would deny that this is massive progress from the uh, uh, Trump era, but uh, more power to the activists and to the uh, Bernie Sanders and Alexander Ocasio-Cortez team who were in uh, workshops uh, during the uh, middle of 2020 to sort of hammer out how Biden could move um, this far on three uh, grounds. First, uh, 
just transition language, that is uh, pro-labor kind of politics of transitioning from carbon intensive industries. Very, very important and often overlooked and therefore uh, prone to generating artificial jobs versus uh, environment uh, divisions. The second uh, certainly is an acknowledgement of environmental racism. And, you know, the United States has had this uh, dilemma that the uh, correlation of uh, race and neighborhood on the one hand and uh, high pollution sites uh, on the other is just absolutely extraordinary. And Robert Bullard, uh, uh, an academic uh, now in Texas, was very critical in pointing this out. And it's taken a while for Democrats to take this on. But I see that as a kind of explicit point of the uh, the Biden uh, plan. And the third is a series of uh, micro interventions that could be in the whole scheme of things. Very important because they give activists, for example, 350.org was fighting very hard against the Keystone Pipeline, its northern wing from Canada uh, to Nebraska, and that's now uh, nearly finished but uh, shut down. Uh, many of the provisions that would stop offshore drilling and, and oil and gas drilling on federal lands, um, the shift towards uh, renewable energy uh, funding and uh, electric cars, all of these are very important at the sort of industry level and micro changes that will be uh, critical also to give confidence to activists to take the next step. So I do see some positive, absolutely. But, you know, uh, the Indigenous Environmental Network flags for us that there are market strategies and Food and Water Watch is worried about ongoing fracking. Those are very important. I would take also um, very seriously the international dimensions, especially given John Kerry's uh, track record in the UN process. Well, one of the first things that uh, President Biden did on day one of his presidency is bring the United States back into the Paris Accords on Climate, uh, the Paris Agreements. Uh, the, the, there's been a lot of criticism of that Paris Agreement. Uh, I mean, I guess rejoining it, at, if nothing else, symbolically is good because it, you know, it ends the, the Trump uh, denialism in a kind of official way. On the other hand, a lot of people thought the Paris Accords was was another, maybe not a form of outright denialism, but what some people call avoidism. Uh, so how much does this new Biden plan, uh, avoidism, more symbolic than real, uh, or, or and what's it missing? Well, it's terribly important that the U.S. face the international dimensions of the problem. And, you know, there's language in there that I would worry about that securitizes climate because the Pentagon has a stake in trying to prevent climate refugees from becoming the source of, well, the kinds of conflicts that in Darfur, in um, the uh, Sudanese uh, internal struggles, or in Syria, where there was a drought and that led to immigration to the cities. The, in other words, the kind of tendencies around the world towards chaos and uh, a breakdown of states uh, are amplified when there are climate crises. There's no question that the Pentagon's been aware of it. They have a big Operation Minerva and fund academics to study where these tensions are. So there's a there's sort of a securitization. And there's, of course, a lot of tendencies in the U.S. that are xenophobic. Um, and those have you know, come out of Obama's administration. He was the deporter in chief. And when there are climate refugees from Central America coming up desperate because of the conditions, the terrible uh, storms that have been hitting in Central America, well, then uh, activists in the U.S. will have to, you know, amp up their internationalism. But, you know, worst of all is that we have to remember the U.S. was the saboteur of anything positive under the Obama administration when John Kerry was the secretary of state. Before him, 
was Hillary Clinton. And together, and especially with their main agent in the State Department, the negotiator in chief of this UN process from the US side, Todd Stern, they were absolutely terrifying because they had all the coercion plus some carrots. And together, this was destruction of the most important aspects of any international treaty you'd want. Can I just throw out to you something from your home country of Canada, a Montreal protocol that would have been a good model. And that was in 1987, when even the Reagan administration and companies like General Electric and Dow that were part and parcel of, of chlorofluorocarbon production, they had to acknowledge that a major threat, the ozone hole, uh, growing because of the CFCs in the air, had to be um, halted. And the, the solution was a very straightforward cap. It was a ban on future uh, CFC emissions after 1996. You know, there'd been a bit of cheating. There was some uh, HCFC emissions from China and you know, those have been addressed, but that's sort of our model of how you would want to do it with the state taking command and control. Now, in And it worked. It did work and the ozone hole is no longer growing and it's under control. And this is the dilemma that, okay, there are a few sources, a few companies like, and refrigerators and underarm deodorants that were giving these out and you could replace it. CO2 and methane, the main greenhouse gases, are much more dispersed, and the impact of a, of a rapid phase-out will be more uh, tumultuous for all economies, and especially the one I'm uh, based in now, South Africa, which uh, is the third largest emitter when you take per-person emissions, about nine tons, ranking as number 11, but also divide by GDP. So our most carbon-addicted economies in the world are Kazakhstan, the Czech Republic, and South Africa. So for a country like this, I see the importance uh, more acutely than I would assume others do of a good international arrangement like the Montreal um, Protocol. Now, the problem is that from 1997, the US started to intervene in the way climate politics were being constructed, such as uh, insisting that they privatize the air as a strategy, meaning carbon trading. That means a, a U.S. company that was emitting too much could buy the right to pollute from a company that wasn't emitting as much and go into the markets. And these uh, ethereal and fictional carbon emissions uh, amounts that could be, you know, sort of opened up as permits to pollute were then um, introduced. And in 2004, 2005, they became uh, the European Union Emissions Trading Scheme, the, the largest scheme. And in the US, the Chicago Exchange and a couple of regional um, markets opened up. The Chicago Exchange, Gore backed, and he was really promoting after he lost the presidential election in 2000. And he, and he did so in, in the film he won the Nobel Prize for. Um, and, and that um, strategy of Al Gore's crashed completely because the financial markets crashed, Paul. And that, to me, is one of the great lessons that as we're going into such extraordinary bubbling that, you know, kids on Reddit can shake up big hedge funds in Wall Street, the bubbles out there, what they call the, the Buffett indicator, the measure of market capitalization, the value of the stock markets of the world to the GDP, the output, that uh, is at unprecedented levels. In fact, South Africa's got the highest national level in world history now. So we are with financial bubbles, now seeing carbon credits become one of the most important speculative items. And that's why the US, when it introduced in 1997, with the promise that if you put in carbon markets, we, the US, will sign on. And of course, the US never did, uh, never signed on to Kyoto. And then the next part of this story is quickly is 
Copenhagen, 2009, and Barack Obama barged into a room. How did he know where to go? Because the NSA was bugging his negotiating opponents. Who were they? Well, the premier of China, Wen Jibao, uh, the prime minister of India, Manmohan Singh, Lula, the president of Brazil, and South Africa's president, Zuma. And he barged in, he found these four guys, they're called the basic Brazil, South Africa, India, China, the basic group. And he found them and you know, with Hillary Clinton and Todd Stern said, here's the deal. It's just a one page Copenhagen Accord. And essentially it's hey, you pollute, I pollute. It's a deal. Right. And this was the, the deal that, uh, as Bill McKibben said, blew up the United Nations. It was the League of Polluters and Super Polluters. Right. And it was them saying we don't want to have any binding constraints. Kyoto had some binding. We don't want any penalties. We don't want any you know, real ambitions to bring uh, the emissions down to the level. And I think that's when we entered this decade. Barack Obama had just the day before won the Nobel Peace Prize, right? Um, warrior that he was. And then sabotaging anything serious in the UNFCCC was the project. And thank goodness for WikiLeaks and for um, Ed Snowden's releases of how the NSA works. We know down to the details, both the State Department cables, Chelsea Manning's uh, leaks of how in 2009 and 10, bullying and bribery were the US State Department's modus operandi. And then we know from uh, the emails of uh, Hillary Clinton that Todd Stern was uh, emailing how he was doing and trying to destroy the foundations of equity, right? You know, he said, if there's equities in, then wear out. He told the negotiators here in South Africa in Durban in 2011. And I think, you know, you get that kind of, um, let's say, a, a tradition of uh, US imperialism, climate imperialism, and then a few, let me call them climate sub-imperialists, you know, the sort of second layer like South Africa, join in and then you've got a Paris climate agreement with such fatal flaws. I think it does more harm than good to be promoting that strategy at this stage. The uh, critique of many people, including interviews I did on the analysis uh, prior to the uh, Biden's victory of Biden's climate plan, looking on his website, um, there was a almost entire reliance on carbon capture. Uh, very, very little about actually phasing, in fact, almost nothing about phasing out fossil fuels. Um, and But assuming that these targets that are now seem even more, uh, what's the word, bold to hit the 1.5 instead of the 2, which I'm happy to see, but are they still primarily relying on, some, on what will be carbon capture technology, which is, as I understand it, is still quite unproven, and that they still seem kind of light on the, they're going to end fossil fuel subsidies, but they don't seem to be doing what you're, we're talking about in, in the Montreal Accord, where you simply pick a date and you actually legislate fossil fuels out, out of use. Exactly, because these are essentially corporate neoliberals, aren't they? I mean, the, the Biden tradition, he comes from Delaware, the main tax haven in the US. He's again and again promoted the interests of the financial sector, uh, the bankruptcy bill being a, you know, a good example. I think what it means, though, Paul, is not simply the uh, Dr. Strangelove technology that is sort of untried, untested and quite dangerous, trying to suck carbon underground. Hopefully it stays there, but we know that you know, if it erupts, uh, big clouds of carbon dioxide can be 
can be mass killers. We've seen this in, in, uh, in places like Cameroon. But the main thing is they want to do net zero to try to pretend that these accounting tricks can allow them to continue emitting in different ways, hopefully much less on the energy side, but you know, in all sorts of other areas, there's emissions coming from the US at these record levels, and then buy the right to pollute from other places. So these offsets and carbon trades are going to be essential. And indeed, in Biden's plan, he's explicitly arguing for market-based solutions in the Amazon. Now we know there's a maniac, Jair Bolsonaro, running Brazil, and he's letting his mates who do soy and cattle and timber and mining wreck the Amazon. And forest fires, you know, every uh, July, August, September, November are out of uh, October, out of control. So anything we can do to try to get um, more pressure on Bolsonaro not to allow this in his remaining years in office is is vital. But we already know very much that the Amazon uh, purchases of land and attempts to corral areas. There's a reducing emissions through deforestation and forest degradation plan. Um, there are all manner of clean development mechanism strategies that have been used in uh, the forests, the tropical forests all over the world. And the Amazon's been acutely uh, affected by the attempt, especially by the California um, investors who are part of the California Air Resources Board to purchase these red uh, reducing emissions through deforestation and forest degradation um, uh, credits. And that means they can keep polluting in California and pretend that they're protecting land in, uh, you know, in, in Central American and, and South American jungles. But I would encourage your, your uh, viewers to go to Amazon Watch website because there that's been one of the key sites of the counter uh, struggle where uh, hundreds of scientists have said that this is just not working. It's immoral. The way in which you're doing uh, the, the protection of the Amazon is counterproductive because you're kicking out some of the forest people, the indigenous people who really can manage the, uh, the Amazon. This is just one example, Paul, but as I say, when you rely on bankers to uh, try to fix the problem uh, of our century, the climate crisis. And we know from what's going on now in the financial world, they're corrupt and greedy and self-interested and short-termist and are totally incapable of even managing their own financial self-regulation. Um, and they let all manner of uh, you know, chaotic new uh, exotic devices come in. I would therefore worry enormously that uh, this orientation of Biden, Kerry, and the people around him towards privatizing the air, selling it to the higher bidder and putting it into some bank-created market is going to be as successful as it was with the Chicago uh, climate exchange, which crashed in, in 2010. Well, one is the cap-and-trade stuff and creating the exchange, uh, which outside of perhaps maybe, I've been told, some success in California has been mostly smoke and mirrors everywhere else, um, If if that's correct but but they're also talking about uh, carbon tax and pricing in uh, the real cost of carbon uh, there's a lot of language it seems in the biden carry plan so far without a lot of detail that does seem to strike a lot of of the right notes if they're really going to do it but i've never quite understood whether carbon taxation pricing in the real cost of carbon as opposed to regulating fossil fuel out of existence is, is there something to carbon pricing? Is, is there any evidence that it can be effective? 
Yeah, I mean, the danger always when you take nature and you apply market principles, sometimes it's incredibly important to do so as to calculate the ecological debt that is owed by the polluter. So you kind of say, well, the present value of this uh, ecological damage, uh, this extraction of uh, a resource base would be so and so. And then you, you know, you think about what kind of compensation this is done all the time. And the question is whether we can make public policy that is genuinely conscious of ecological damage. And the strategy of a neoliberal and a typical US neoliberal is very, you know, sort of, um, let me say, bounded by national uh, concerns. And so if you go to the carbon tax center, you'll see they have no conception of the tax uh, that should be given to the victims of US created climate chaos through a climate debt payment, right? That would be, you know, that would be one of the ways you'd say, okay, we can take without it being a market, but we can still say you've done damage and the polluter should pay and you should pay a fine and then we'll ban you. But that's very different, uh, Paul, than saying, we're going to tax you, you're going to pay a fee and then you keep doing what you're doing. And that's the dilemma. The taxation systems can be very complicated because, you know, everyone reacts to a tax in different ways. Uh, the economists um, have a term, the elasticity, right? The way in which a higher price because of a tax may affect your consumption. And if you look at the two most spectacular carbon tax failures, we should learn. One was in France uh, in 2018, and the Yellow Vest movement came up as a result of the uh, carbon tax and the pressure that rural people who were dependent on petrol, you know, and gas for making long distance kinds of trips. And then in Ecuador, very rapidly, the IMF was pushing a, you know, quite conservative government, a government that had, of Lenin Moreno, that had once been under the Rafael Correa sort of a pink tide, but then moved very quickly to the right. And then as they put on the tax that created in 2019, mass protests, you know, IMF riots, and nearly led to Lenin Moreno being overthrown. He had to actually run away to Guayaquil from Quito, the capital, to, to save his government. And those are the kinds of mistakes that suggest if you're not doing carbon tax um, applications with the majority of the of the population in a in a you know really proactive and participatory way where you're explaining to the society you know the way like a, a Che Guevara or a Fidel Castro would have done you know really saying these are the problems we face we're going to have to take some steps uh, make some sacrifices and I think that carbon taxation has to be applied in such a progressive way that the working class who are you know by virtue of capitalism stuck out in the periphery of cities. So they're going to pay higher commuting bills anyway, especially if they're having these old, less efficient cars. Um, and I'd like to see a debate about whether carbon taxation as an international principle might be effective as well, because the, the goods that we um, are, are importing, the, the laptop I'm talking uh, to you on right now, is a product of uh, processes that create emissions, and those are not properly calculated. And in a drive towards more localization and more self-reliance and more interconnected local economies that are not so you know subject to whims of the world division of labor or you know the U.S. currency you know fluctuations all the things that make our trading system so chaotic a carbon tax applied to trade and the the phrase for this by the way is a border adjustment tax so if you come over my border but you've carried embedded carbon, well, you should be paying some price for that. Now, the one time we would have really loved a carbon tax had the world been serious 
would have been against Donald Trump on June 1, 2017, when he pulled out of Paris. So, you know, some sanctions, I think people as diverse as Naomi Klein and, and Joe Stiglitz and even Nicolas Sarkozy, the, the former conservative French president, all said, yeah, that guy must be punished for um, the U.S. pulling out and that for U.S. goods are cheaper than they should be otherwise. And you see carbon pricing as a political approach to trying to make this uh, climate struggle one that is as, as uh, wide ranging and as um, capable of grappling with those power players. There may be something to that, too. That's not where Biden's going to go. But the problem with carbon pricing seems to me, especially a global agreement on carbon pricing, but even just domestic ones. Uh, and by the way, I do need to correct something when you said I'm Canadian. I'm only Canadian when I have to critique Canada, mm. but I'm a dual citizen. So when it's time for me to trash the United States, I, I put on my American passport. When it's time to trash Canada, then I take my Canadian position. Well, more power to you. But that being said, uh, you know, maybe 50 years ago, like when this flag was first raised about uh, climate and global warming, like in 19, late 60s and early 1970s is when this conversation actually began. Uh, maybe you had time to work out agreements on carbon pricing, but it's, it's just, it's beyond uh, uh, any credit, credulity that, that it's gonna be done in a time frame that's necessary. Never forget internationally, I mean, but even domestically. I mean, I don't see anything other than uh, regulatory authority. Uh, how do you even entertain the idea of uh, carbon uh, negotiating carbon taxes? You know, everything you've just said is, is, is absolutely uh, critical because you're describing a difference between a marginal strategy at the margins. In other words, bit by bit uh, and marginalism. That's the underlying ideological apparatus of markets that they move and they shift according to changes in, in, in price, uh, changes in supply and demand. These are the um, ideological fixations of uh, uh, US economists who've been so important in State Department strategy, do things at the margin, just bit by bit. And it's absolutely right that we need a, a real war effort, as is often commented, like World War II for the US made for dramatic shifts in, say, Detroit. No more cars. Let's build some tanks. We've got to defeat Nazism. And it's that spirit, obviously, that's needed and the marginal uh, strategies uh, of carbon pricing. It gets to several of the other major things that Paris leaves out, Paul. If I may, you know, the single biggest polluter, the emitter uh, in the world is, is the U.S. Pentagon with all of its bases and its military activity. And they're left out. Another major uh, emitter left out of Paris is the shipping industry, which does all this uh, transfer and containers and uh, the airline industry, not just passengers, but air cargo. Those are all left out. Um, the most striking point, though, when we talk about the market orientation of the State Department comes up against its own internal contradiction. And that is, Paul, when the normal ideology of a neoliberal is to let market solutions correct for market problems. They call it internalizing an externality. Something external to a market um, uh, should be priced in, but it's not. You know, the, the price of uh, cheap labor in China because there's no trade unions uh, of an independent character. We don't price that in. That's an externality. So you would normally try to adjust and internalize. Now the dilemma is when you when you want to do that, you would 
maybe have a tool, polluter pays, in which you identify, okay, how much damage is being done? And there should be some reparations for that damage. And that's where a new climate denialism, the climate debt denialism, and that's what Todd Stern at the US State Department, backed by Kerry and before him, Clinton. Uh, she, by the way, had a little scam, which I see is being repeated about spending money U.S. money. We're going to have $100 billion a year, right? She was like, I don't know, shaking hands with Donald Trump. You know, you got to count your fingers afterwards. And what Hillary Clinton promised at the Copenhagen summit, which was $100 billion a year, is now, you know, a trivial fraction of that. There's a bit of gaming about climate finance through private markets that might, you know, qualify. But the, the main fund, the Green Climate Fund, which is meant to give grants to support adaptation, uh, resilience, some, you know, lower the the emissions in poor countries, that's running around uh, 10, 11 billion. And, and, you know, we expected 100 billion a year starting last year, 2020. But for the polluter pays ideology, Paul, the most critical uh, internal contradiction is Todd Stern uh, negotiated at the um, uh, Paris Climate Agreement that it would not be acceptable to have a climate debt or liabilities acknowledged. There's even a, a special rider, a special document attached saying, if we recognize that, that some of you countries have had loss and damage, by the way, much of which in the South is not insured for in the North, about 60% of last year's damage was assured, uh, insured. In the South, it was 4%. And what that means is that Todd Stern uh, and uh, John Kerry and Barack Obama with Joe Biden as vice president did the most unjust thing you can imagine, which is we, the U.S., do most of the historic polluting. We do not pay for that pollution. We deny our climate debt. You know, Trump denied climate change. Uh, Biden's people have been denying climate debt. And I hope as reparations continue to be demanded righteously and justifiably, by uh, African-Americans. And if Black Lives Matter, I think a climate debt that the US should pay to uh, the people say in this region where I am in Southern Africa, where um, in Mozambique, uh, we just had yet another massive cyclone, 160 kilometer per hour winds come in and do massive damage, uh, killing more than a dozen. Two years ago, more than 1000 were killed. And I think the damage, uh, the repayments of the physical damage, the priceless lives aside, was only about a quarter of that damage. And even in South Africa, where we have these climate debts, only about 10% gets compensated by various kinds of relief. So I hope that becomes one of the central questions because the United States and especially a Biden administration with lots of rhetoric about justice in this document really does need to confront the historic injustice that the US has visited upon us all. Well, of course I agree with you, but it ain't going to happen. It certainly isn't going to happen in any time frame that's meaningful in terms of the window there is for actually preventing us hitting the two degrees and then three. I, my understanding from the scientists I've talked to, once you've hit two, you get an effect called runaway. And once you've hit two, you're on your way to three. And of course, then, the, you know, four isn't far away and, and, and much of the planet becomes unlivable. So uh, while I think it's correct to raise these issues of uh, climate debt, 
I don't think it actually should be the focus of the movement here, because right now the, the real politics of this is, are there sections of the elites who are going to actually really get the existential threat and instead of just trying to financialize the problem and make money out of the problem, treat it like the Montreal Accord, as you started off this interview saying, and absolutely take a hard line on regulating fossil fuels out of existence and sustainable energy into existence with a massive investment. Um, and and I, the way I frame it that way is because right now, as much as you know, Sunrise and the other uh, environmental activist groups have played a, certainly a positive role. They've helped influence and make this more of an issue for the Biden administration. Um, the reality of American politics is that movement is really quite weak. You know, the, the, the number of, 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 of members of Congress who really would support the kind of really effective regulation, regulating fossil fuels out of existence, you can probably count on two hands, maybe three hands if you had a third hand. Uh, we, 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 as a movement, as people who really care about this, uh, and, and it's mo uh, I would say it's in various parts of the political spectrum, but mostly on the left, uh, I think we got to get realistic that there's, there, there, there has to be sections of the elites who don't just play smoke and mirrors with us and are, are pressured uh, in various ways by a movement to actually support effective action. Because what do we got? Uh, nine years, 10 years? If the scientists are saying it's a decade, if we're gonna not hit 1.5, we're not even close to that kind of politics in, in North America. And I don't see that close to it in China, or, or I mean, Europe talks a good game, but uh, you know, Greta Thunberg is very good as pointing out that Europe talks a good game and uh, doesn't execute. And the moment's so critical. We, we better get laser focused on seeing if it's actually possible to get effective action here. Oh, I agree with speed, but good politics with speed is critical. And I think we're um, not at cross purposes in saying one critical aspect is to identify those imperialist and neoliberal aspects of climate action, a dominant theme in climate policy, and question them in order to change the balance of forces. So exactly this terrible uh, struggle scene that you're describing with some youth sunrise movement, uh, labor slowly coming into focus, um, and, you know, groups like 350 and uh, many of the NGOs doing good work, um, very, very critical groups in a climate justice alliance all over, especially the indigenous uh, peoples, the people of color in the US. I look to them really for uh, hopefully growing in strength by, by strength. Uh, now, the question is, how do we then weaken um, the imperial forces? And you're right, uh, there's no uh, elites out there right now ready to uh, accept a sort of Montreal Protocol scale of banning um, greenhouse gases. That's, that's true at the I, moment. I, I, think th I think there might be some, but they're also marginalized. Yeah, or they they are playing as Elon Musk, a South African, now the richest man in the world, playing all sorts of other games with uh, technology. But it does seem to me that what Greta Thunberg did at the World Economic Forum last week um, was very, uh, you know, it was very appropriate. She made really two critical points um, in her short intervention. One is that they're accounting gimmicks, and therefore we must never relax guard when we hear about commitments to net zero, because you've got to look, you know, at the double in those details as we've begun to do here. 
I mean, we haven't seen a climate uh, uh, politics that um, is so technologically focused um, that it would, uh, you know, solve the problem. The idea you could uh, sequester carbon under coal-fired power plants or uh, have a bionic plant to sequester um, carbon from the air. These are still way away uh, in the future, if ever, uh, but, and they're dangerous as well. But the second point she made was ultimately continuing her tradition of delegitimization of these elites. Um, and when she goes to Davos, or she was in New York in uh, September 2019, she was uh, you know, looking at the, the uh, core of the problem right there. And she was very explicit that uh, the youth are going to be claiming their rights to a decent life in their future generations. And those of us in the older generations who failed so far really have to stand back and let a new generation uh, come through. This is a delegitimization of, of older elites. So it's done on age basis, but it's absolutely you know, appropriate to say. And I think the North-South dimension, the more we see these movements coming up from the South, I am often in contact with groups here in South Africa, but the, another group, the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance, they were in Copenhagen formidable in delegitimizing the deal that was going down then, working with the then Ambassador Lumumba Diaping, one of the great voices from Africa. So I think the North-South dimension. And that's, uh, you know, again, something that as uh, uh, African-Americans and BLM and uh, other people of conscience, and they, you know, remember another struggle that seemed for so long impossible, Paul, the anti-apartheid struggle in which so many people in the U.S. said, well, maybe we should take some sacrifices and, and endure some uh, you know, some some pain so we can get some gain that will we'll take our money out of these profitable companies doing business in South Africa, the biggest in, you know, in the world at the time, the big Ford and GM and IBM. And we'll take a divestment hit to our uh, own investments so we can, uh, you know, we can try to end this uh, outrageous crime against humanity. So I think those things come up from time to time. And international solidarity is something that uh, the United States uh, can continue to give, but also can benefit from if we were to somehow generate the pressure outside the U.S. to put climate sanctions on the U.S. So obviously in conjunction with activists in the U.S. And I'd really hope that Donald Trump would... Well, we'll, be at, we'll be at four degrees before Europe or any of these people put sanctions on no, the United right. States. No, you're right. Timing is... Five, de five degrees. There won't be an earth left. I, I think we, not, we can't have illusions about what's possible here. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in no way suggesting taking the foot off the gas of exposing... Uh, the fraud of like net zero. And uh, I mean, I've done several pieces about that. We'll do more. Uh, the, the whole terminology of net zero, it, it's implicit that there's going to be some magical carbon uh, capture technology. Um, no, I think we must continue, as you say, delegitimize the, the greenwashing phony solutions. The Biden plan, and, and I I guess until we see more detail about what this new infrastructure thing is going to really be looking like, how much are they really going to put into uh, new sustainable energy and how much of that's going to just be financialized to make money for Wall Street? Like, we won't know yet. It does at least talk about regenerative agriculture, which seems to be one of the things in a toolkit of, that might actually help, which is a, a natural, healthy way to... Uh, transform agriculture so more carbon is captured in the soil. Um, it, there's, there's mention of that in the Biden plan. Is there going to be a massive investment? Are they going to either bribe or force agribusiness to 
transform into that. Uh, there's some some argument that it's actually more profitable to do agriculture that way. I mean, I I I, I mean, I am obviously predisposed not to market mechanisms, not because of some purity. I couldn't care less. Honestly, if, if BlackRock, the biggest asset manager in the world, could take his assets from the current, I think they're at 8 trillion now, if they could get to 100 trillion and actually fix the climate crisis, let them have their bloody 100 trillion. The, the reason I'm against market mechanisms is because they don't work. Uh, there's no evidence that if market mechanisms worked, we'd already be on the way to a solution. I mean, it's, it's too obvious. Uh, is there any break in the thinking of the financial sector, uh, you know, as, as represented by the Biden administration? Are they actually starting to get that this isn't just another opportunity to make money, that they really are threatened? And, and I don't know the answer. I read BlackRock's... Uh, Larry Fink has made some speeches, who's the head of BlackRock, on uh, the threat of existential threat of climate. And a lot of his language sounds great. But when you actually dig into what he was going to do, it's so far smoke and mirrors. They're going to not invest in coal when a company doesn't make more than 25%, any company that makes more than 25% of its revenue from coal, they won't use their... Um, there's the investments where they invest in whole index funds, which they don't get to pick and choose stocks, and then there's others where they pick and choose. So they won't invest in any company whose revenue is more than 25% from coal. They fail to tell us that one of the companies that they invest in is a very diversified company. So even though it's the second largest coal producer in the United States, 25% of its revenues are not from coal. So BlackRock can keep investing in them. Yeah. So there's so much BS going on, which we need to expose. But, but I'm convinced if we can't find ways to get at least some of the elites seriously on board because they get an existential threat to their own profit making, uh, the people's movement, at least it, I, I don't see it by, by in 10 years, there's going to be the force, especially in the United States. Uh, to transform things. Nobody saw the, the Arab Spring, the North African uprisings, uh, even weeks before in Tunisia and, and Egypt. And uh, nobody saw the struggles that emerged that year and um, all over the world. I mean, this is uh, what even the Center for um, Strategic and International Studies, a conservative Washington think tank, termed the age of mass protest. So these, these movements rise and uh, they've overthrown governments again and again. And the question is whether um, at some point, if, if indeed it's still the case that there's no elite willing to make the market-based or even some sacrificial-based strategic turn. Oh, can I can I just say I'm not suggesting the elites are going to come up with some market-based solution. I don't think there really is a market-based solution. Your Montreal Accord. Enough of the elites saw the necessity for the Montreal Accord. Mm -hmm. to regulate these things out of existence. No, I, yeah. I don't believe there. Every market-based solution, I think, on the whole, so far we've seen, is, is smoke and mirrors. 
Yeah, and as I say, I think the critical problem about putting um, uh, environmental assets into markets is that they become speculative commodities. They truly are ethereal, right? They're not they're as you know as real as a, as a Bitcoin. So they'll just blow very high and then they'll crash very very deep, you know. And then uh, this is what we saw already. And can I can I add one little more thing to my argument? Then I don't think there's any possibility of sections of the elites getting serious about climate unless there is the kind of mass movement you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's- millions of Millions of people willing to be in the streets and vote uh, in this way, mm -hmm. then then I don't think it is possible. Well, that's right. And then the the dilemma then is um, where you've got a division of labor in the early stages of this movement. You've got sort of big eight uh, environmental NGOs in Washington and you know, you, you kind of say, well, they're going to be tight with Biden, with one or two exceptions. You know, Greenpeace is usually out on the left and being very critical. But it does seem to me that that's where the division of labor between the tree shakers and the jam makers, as Jesse Jackson always loved to you know, explain, has to be much more explicit. The tree shakers have often used climate justice principles, analyses, strategies, tactics, and alliances, including, you know, alliances with the more advanced wing of the labor movement and uh, people of color who are very concerned, you know, with the uh, uh, implications in uh, communities. Uh, you know, the New Orleans was very racially um, hit uh, by by the way Katrina's uh, effect in 2005, um, you know, particularly uh, drowned the areas where low-income people live, black people lived, and these are the kinds of I think politics of of a, of a left that will be continually putting pressure. What I would worry about is the same concern we had uh, about uh, Barack Obama coming to power in early 2009 that he got such a free pass, a honeymoon, that he could bail out Wall Street and uh, allow the, the banksters there to, to chop uh, African-American homeowners. And so that's where the jam makers inside uh, the system or the NGOs that have some access at the moment, whatever that may consist of, have got to encourage the critical voices outside. Otherwise, they're just going to be sucked right into, um, you know, elite status quo orientations. And that will include, I think, the international. I mean, that's why when um, in Glasgow, if it happens in November, or may, it may not be delayed because of uh, COVID-19 not yet being under control, the Glasgow COP is one that I know the British progressives are really mobilizing to have as critical an outside standpoint as possible. And we've had in the past COPs, past conferences of the parties or conferences of the polluters, many you know interesting tactical discussions. Do you block the hotels, you know, like in say Washington DC in 2000 to try to stop delegates from going in? Or um, as one year Michael Hart suggests, maybe you should ring them in and, and make sure they don't leave until a deal is done, you know, something to really dramatize. And I think we might be ripe for that in the short term in, in terms of whether the Glasgow COP26 might be a really important site of struggle where tree shakers will be, you know, shaking extra hard and jam makers uh, will take full advantage. And I think right in this current political moment, there has to be in the United States a real demand that bipartisanship is essentially compromised with climate deniers, that this is a national emergency and there is no place for bipartisanship. The Republicans should be treated as a criminal organization. And as much as possible, the Biden administration should rule as if there is no uh, Republicans in Senate. 
And, and hopefully, if they did that, both on economic justice issues and climate issues, we won't see a repeat of 2010, where the Democrats so uh, handed stuff over to the Republicans uh, in, in the name of bipartisanship, they wound up with nothing, and they lost uh, the Senate, and, uh, it, and it's, it could all be happening again. Uh, it's true that the $2,000 check promised in Georgia is now 1400 and it won't be immediate as promised. It'll be in March. And we're already seeing the signs of uh, futility of moving to the center from Biden. Maybe he'll learn something and he'll be losing popularity as that happens. Isn't it a tricky dilemma, though, because just the way you put it, uh, the most criminal gang in world history. Uh, Noam Chomsky uh, describes the Republican Party. On the one hand, very clearly identifies the elites who have blocked and make it impossible for the US to sign a Kyoto Protocol or really do anything useful. Because if you turn it into a treaty, it doesn't get through a US Senate that's full of climate denialists on the one hand. But on the other hand, you've got this extraordinary base of uh, climate denialism that is influenced by a conspiracy theory that suggests uh, management of this massive crisis is part and parcel of a satanic cult or um, one world government. You know, the, the way that the far right has, has used climate as part of its um, uh, uh, armory of you know, why we don't like anything to do with uh, a progressive agenda, because climate you know, fiction, in their view, uh, then gives the excuse to change the economy drastically. And that's where the just transition, that's where the working class in the US, here in South Africa, is really needing to be uh, much more engaged and much more visionary about how an eco-socialist transition could work in the interests of workers. And I don't think there's any other way to put it. You you may see, you know, the United States labor movement very tentatively moving in this direction, but ultimately uh, the forces of capital and the power of profit will work against exactly that transition. And uh, so it will be, a, I think, this very interesting dilemma. How do the U.S. progressive uh, forces identify their enemies in the Republican Party, but try to also dampen the craziness that occurs even among working class people who buy into a QAnon or other climate denialist conspiracies at the base? Um, I think the only way to do that is really in action. It's, it's in um, activist campaigning, and it's often to do with the way uh, workers and communities can find unity. South Africa has been a place where that's been difficult. We've even had an assassination of a, of a community leader just uh, three months ago because she was so good at fighting a coal mine and um, uh, people associated with the mine or with the uh, with the, um, the labor movement there who supported the coal mining uh, went and shot her, Fikile and Chingazi. She stands as a sort of symbol of how we've failed to find the just transition to unite poor and working people, women leaders, especially in these communities. Um, I hope that's the next stage of our movements building, and it has to be fast, as you say. And and I, it's, I think what needs to be done, if there's any political will to do it, is number one, the Biden administration, as part of this plan, has to come out and clearly say, every worker working in a carbon industry now is going to be guaranteed an income at the same level as they transition to other kinds of jobs. It's not enough to say they're gonna have jobs in the uh, sustainable energy sector because it doesn't pay as much as what they're making now. They have to be guaranteed the level of wages. Instead of the Fed spending trillions of dollars to juice the stock market, it would be a pittance of that money to guarantee the, a level for carbon workers fossil fuel workers to maintain their current income level. Uh, Bob Poland did some math on Pennsylvania 
uh, what it would actually take to guarantee Pennsylvania uh, gas workers and people working in, in that sector. It's a, it's, it's a pittance compared to what they've been doing uh, to subsidize uh, asset protection. Yeah. Uh, then the second thing is, th there was once a civil war in the United States to settle the, some very big issues. Hmm. And, and there, there may be, need to be an element of a civil war here because there are sections of the society that are never going to be persuaded about anything. I think they're a real minority. But you can't have a politics of persuading a 20% that have become completely fanatical mm. and try to water down the policies to somehow not antagonize that 20% that are fanatical. So what you're saying, I'm just agreeing with. A real yes. just transition policy and then a really, uh, you know, I, I said in another interview, if the Biden doesn't get accused by the Republicans of being an autocrat the way FDR was accused of being an autocrat, then he ain't doing what need, needs to be done. Yes, and likewise, that uh, if activists aren't continuing to put pressure and, you know, not patting him on the back so much uh, as they have the last uh, couple of weeks, th then he won't move. Um, you know, I take my faith from something that's quite similar to the paradox in which you do find climate denialists at the base of the poor and working class masses in a country like the US. And we found that in this country uh, 20 years ago on the struggle to get medicines for AIDS. So about 7 million people living with HIV needed these medicines. Now, there was a Donald Trump type at the presidency, Thabo Mbeki, who was an AIDS denialist, right? And he had to be shifted out of the way. Uh, eventually, that was done internal to his party. But the critical thing, after uh, a heroic young activist, Gugu Dlamini, she was killed in a uh, an attack by um, people who were concerned that when she was giving AIDS information, she was somehow, uh, you know, part and parcel of a big pharma conspiracy. It was a similar sort of QAnon type of madness that was going on in this particular place, Kwamashu. And what uh, um, uh, Gugu Dlamini, what Gugu Dlamini uh, lost her life for was simple AIDS education, and it motivated a treatment action campaign. And what they found was part and parcel of uh, failing to um, grapple with how to address uh, being HIV positive for so many people was that there was no hope. So if they could find a way to get medicines to people for free through the public health service, instead of, as existed at the time, the $10,000 per year price tag for the cocktail that uh, antiretroviral medicines represented, that incredible class access problem was resolved only through struggle. And it involved, ironically, 20 years ago this year, the World Trade Organization, under pressure from all over the world, finally acknowledging there needed to be a waiver on intellectual property so that generic versions of this medicine could be made. Now, it was um, uh, at the time I was writing, I'm embarrassed, that it would be impossible to achieve these amazing uh, ambitions, right, to get rid of intellectual property from big pharma when the US government was behind it and your own government was an AIDS denialist. And the World Trade Organization had a whole trade-related intellectual property system designed to you know, take royalties and surpluses out of places exactly for that. So nevertheless, the, the balance of forces was shifted. Consciousness was raised. Campaigns were waged. And I say all this because on Thursday, February 4, the same debate comes back to the World Trade Organization, the same venue, the Trade-Related Intellectual Property System Council. 
And in this case, it's South Africa with India, um, Kenya, and Swaziland fighting against the US, against Canada, against Europe, uh, against Japan, against Brazil. We're not sure about China and Russia, which way. And it's again, this uh, heroic moment where activists say we need to decommodify this life-saving vaccine for COVID and the treatment. And we need to make sure we spread it around the world because if somebody has COVID, as the UN Secretary General said the other day, there's a danger everyone will continue to get it in wave after wave and variant after variant. And I think that's the sort of uh, heroic moment that will also launch us into more visionary thinking. COVID-19 did that, didn't it? It, it did uh, alert people that major changes in their lifestyles could happen. For most people, it was negative. It was a period where carbon emissions briefly went down, uh, but uh, you know lifestyles were thrown asunder because for the most part, certainly I can say South Africa, the states were not equipped to make up the difference. And I think nevertheless, it's one of those moments with COVID-19 that forces us to be much more visionary in this country to hopefully get a national health insurance, maybe even uh, a Medicare for all in the US comes logically from the crisis. And the climate crisis is not far behind. If we, if we do our work, which is to think um, big about uh, the kind of problems and to be inspired by the solutions such as getting AIDS. I should just add the solution there was so powerful that at the time life expectancy was down to 52. Today it's 65 purely because of those 7 million people now getting the free uh, AIDS medicines uh, when they need them. Thanks very much for joining us, Patrick. This is just the beginning of our conversation. We'll do it. Let's do it again in a few weeks. Good. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. And please, again, don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage. Mm -hmm.